Well, today we're looking at a scene. We've been talking about the life of Abraham, and we've been talking about the life of Sarah, and we've seen how God has reaffirmed to Abraham his promise to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And as we see in the scripture, that actually, while that promise was true, that promise was good, that promise didn't come when Abraham and Sarah had wanted it. And we see that that temptation was translated into some things that became bad for them. Have you ever received that bad advice? You know, that encouragement like, oh, I know what you should do in this situation. Oh, he, you know, this will fix it. Um, this will take care of things. <clears throat> in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Tim, Paul tells Timothy, I urge you first that petitions and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. As I've been thinking a little bit about uh, the challenges facing the world today, um, as we once again have entered a time that feels very much like old Cold War kind of situations, and that you've got NATO and the Ukraine, and you've got all of these people thinking, what do we do, and how do we solve these problems? I think we need to pray for our leaders. There's a lot of people that, that think they know what ought to be done. Well, do this, or do that, or this will... I don't know, but the Lord knows. So let's stop, and I even pray one more time, that God would give wisdom to global leaders. Lord, we've been at your feet all day, but we continue to come before you in prayer because you are the Lord of all creation. And we stop and we ask today for your way to, to be done, your will to be done, your, your mind, your heart, your wisdom to be given to world leaders that peace would be restored. God, we don't know what to do, and our anxious hearts are fearful. But, Lord, you calm the storms. Lord, you are the prince of peace. Lord, would you come and move in the hearts of leaders. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I pray that our leaders don't listen to bad advice. I'm not sure I've got any good advice to give, but please don't listen to bad advice. Abraham listened to some bad advice. Sarah listened to some bad advice. Look at what it says in Genesis chapter 16. It says, Now Sarah, uh, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Remember, he's supposed to have this inheritance of, of, of literally nations coming uh, from his progeny. So Abram, this is the cr crux of the issue. God has just promised once again the sand and the seashore will not be as numerous as your children. But his wife still had no children. They had no children. But she did have an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Verse 2. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me. Now notice that. The Lord has kept me from having children. So go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. Now, this may strike us as very strange and odd. I mean, who in the world, what wife would encourage their husband to have an affair or to have marry, in a sense, a second wife, take someone else? 
But in the world of the Abram's day, this was actually not as uncommon as you might think. We later see amongst the patriarchs, Jacob not only married two sisters, but ended up marrying their handmaidens as well and had four wives. So the multiple wife uh, situation was not uncommon for Abraham's day. However, he had just had the one life for 85 years for quite a long time. He had stayed with the same woman, the love of his life, the one he had made that commitment to. And yet, as they grew older, that discontentment, that dissatisfaction, that heart longing, and frankly, not having the children began to be that tension in which Sarah was willing to say, you know, maybe something else, maybe there's another way, maybe something else could satisfy the situation. In the culture of the day, this also was not uncommon. You could have a slave or a handmaiden actually have a child that would be counted as the child of the, of the wife. Um, they went through some interesting rituals and some interesting processes uh, to kind of make that credit end up being there. It seems very odd and strange to us, but this was sort of a way to preserve a lineage and preserve a heritage. So this really isn't as shocking as we might think, but here... With the people of God, with trusting the promise of God, it should shock us. Bad advice. It can come from all kinds of sources. It doesn't matter. This was Abram's wife. It can come from all kinds of places. We can listen to those who even we might trust a lot of times, but they might give bad advice. There's a truth. We each must keep our relationship with God our relationship with God. We each must spend time with him in his word. We can't just trust, well, you know, my pastor said this. Your pastor might be wrong. Wait, oh, yeah, yeah him too. Your pastor might be wrong in situations. The, the, the scriptures always tell us the truth. We need to have our hearts yielded to the Holy Spirit. We need to be ready. And can I tell you this? You can know that this probably was bad advice. We probably should have sensed it right away when she said this, the Lord has kept me from having children. Blaming God. Blaming God often leads us to bitterness, and, blame, and that bitterness can often lead us to compromise. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer tells us, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. What can happen? We can become angry. We can become dissatisfied. We can begin to say, you know, God has caused this difficulty in my life. God has not brought the healing that I expected. God has never restored what I think has been stolen from me. God has taken, and you know what? I deserve something better. I deserve to have it my way. I deserve to have it, I deserve something else. This, can, this kind of bitterness can lead us to all kinds of bad situations, can lead us to places where we begin to trade in the grace of God, the promises of God, the trust in God, that it's so sweet to trust in Jesus when we're trusting in Jesus, when we let those bitter roots grow up, how much it can cause problems. I, I think I, I shared this one before, but 
I had a friend. He got married. But the marriage wasn't always going as well as he thought it should go. There were the things there that he thought, this isn't right, this isn't good, this isn't satisfying me in the way it should. But oh, I've met a soulmate. Have you, have you heard this before from a friend? Or a, I've, I've met someone that they really seem to really satisfy me. They really must be what God has for me. And all of a sudden there's that temptation for an affair, that temptation to trade what God has for us, the faithfulness that God, the faithfulness that God has called us to for something else. Here in Abram's life, his wife Sarah is like, look, this isn't working, Abraham. Maybe we need to add something to. Maybe we can trade your truth for something else. So often people believe that their needs trump God's promises. Their desires for what is right trump what God truly has given in his faithfulness. And so we end up letting the bitterness take over, the bitterness guide, the bitterness lead to compromise. Are there places where you've been tempted to say, I know God was calling me to be patient here, but this other job, this other security, this other thing seems to be what, what I need. Or maybe this other congregation, this other way of jump church would be better for me. Blaming God can lead to bitterness, and bitterness can lead to compromise. Look at what Abraham does in verse 3. It says, so after Abraham had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. You've got to remember the timeline here. God called Abraham to follow him at 75. 75. He, he was ready to retire, and God's saying, no, I've got something for you to do. I've got a calling in your life. Ten, 75, he and his wife, Sarah, launched out on this adventure with God, and we've seen that journey had plenty of ups and downs, but God continued to remind them of the promises, and in the middle of that, it had been 10 years that they were waiting for God to fulfill this promise. Now, some of you are at a stage in life where 10 years doesn't seem that big of a deal. Anybody starting to, I'm, 10 years, I feel like, 10 years has passed pretty quickly. I've been living in Maryland for 11. It seems like yesterday. I'm still putting on my Syracuse sweatshirts back at home. I mean, it still seems like yesterday to me. 10 years has passed. That doesn't seem that long. When I was a child, right, it's like, Ten years, oh my goodness, you know. Um, uh, I'm 15, how could I ever wait till I'm 25? I think, oh, oh, to be that again. Oh, oh, to have that kind of energy again. Oh, to be able to play soccer and volleyball. Thank you, by the way. The college students had a great time. We spent the night here on Friday night to Saturday. It, 25 students from UMBC. We had a lot of fun playing volleyball and soccer. Somebody doesn't need to do that anymore, me. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, we, we, the all-night lock-in things, never again. They're not happening. That's for somebody else to do. Ten years has passed since I've been doing that, and I don't need to do it anymore. Okay, for Abraham and Sarah, they were older. Surely ten years shouldn't have seemed that long, except when it's a heartache. Ten years seems like an eternity when it's an unfulfilled, this 10 years must have in some ways been like the most difficult 10 years. And as they hit 85, they know they're beyond childbearing years. It just seems like the impossible is impossible. How could we trust God in this? And verse four, so he, Abram, slept with Hagar and she conceived. 
when she grew, uh, when she knew she was pregnant, she actually began to despise her mistress. What's going on? Well, Sarah was the real wife. I mean, Hagar is just sort of the substitute extra, you know, the fling. But she's carrying the child. Maybe she should be the head lady in the, in the household. Maybe she should be in charge. She's going to have the heir. Maybe. And Sarah says to Abram, verse 5, it's your fault. This is your fault. You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now she know, that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Anybody got kind of scratching your head at that one a little bit? I mean, Sarah is upset about this, but Sarah, this was kind of your idea. I, we don't get this Abraham. We're, we're going to see next week the response a little bit. But today I want you to see this. Blaming others can often lead to a spiritual blindness. What kind of spiritual blindness? A spiritual blindness where we don't see our role in this. And that blindness can so often lead to discord. That can happen in the church, right? when we see things not going our way, when, when we see disagreements begin to, 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 to come up, we stop seeing how maybe some of this was our fault. Maybe we're not living the way we, it's, we're supposed to. It's so quick to judge everybody else. We're so quick to throw the stones. We're so quick to criticize. But are we quick to look and examine our hearts? Are we quick to say, I might be the guy who's causing the problem here. I might be the one that set things up wrong. I might have been the one who had wrong expectations. I, maybe it's me. Sarah very quickly was one to say, you know what, yeah, sure, I agreed to go down this path. Sure, I even came up with the idea. But you know what, you're the one who did the deed, Abraham. <laughs> this is on you, buddy. I'm going to blame you. Galatians 5, if you bite and devour one, each other, Watch out, or you'll be destroyed by each other. Paul's talking about the church. Paul's talking about those family relationships. Paul's talking about how we so easily can fall into that discord when, and become blind to our own sin. So I have a question. We're going to look at this a little deeper, but I have a question. Have you found yourself blaming God? Have you found yourself blaming God for failures? Places that aren't working well, but you think it's God's fault when it was really your fault. <clears throat> Probably the uh, <clears throat> academic thing I hate the most in my academic teaching world is the whole blaming the teacher. This has become quite a thing. I used to love my, to read my end-of-the-year evaluations. I know. I was actually talking to another professor about this, and uh, he walked in and he said, wow, okay, um, so you've got a quizzes. Boy, you didn't prepare us well for those. I'm like, no, I did prepare them for the quiz. He's like, yeah, but we get blamed for everything. His expressions were, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, you're always at fault. When the student didn't prepare for their exam, or they didn't study what they were supposed to, or do the work on time, or get, and it's your fault as the professor. You get blamed. You get told you were wrong. It's our fault so often, our failures, and yet we want to blame God. 
tragedies that come. There are horrible things that happen in life, things that just come because this is a fallen world. This world is full of difficulties. This world is, Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I will overcome the world. Disruptions. Things that just uh, mess us up. I was so glad we were able to have worship today. I was like, oh no, it's snowing again. We've had another storm. Do we need to cancel? Anybody else having those thoughts? Make sure you always check if there's storms. I, I appreciate it. Um, if you do, make sure you check our websites for any kind of updates. Um, uh, because sometimes we've had to, to have it go to switch to online virtual services. But I, it always stresses me out. Like, do you make the right call, the wrong call? I didn't want to say come and then the place be in a, an ice skating rink and everybody slip and fall. But... Wow, I'm so glad we didn't today because the roads were clear and everything was good. It was a grace of the Lord. So often we see those disruptions as like, why would this happen? Why did it keep snowing? If you've noticed, it always snows on Saturday. Anybody notice that? It doesn't snow Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It's always snowing on Saturday. God, what are you doing? You're making my life harder. Don't you know that being a pastor is pretty tough here and I have to make a lot of decisions and I shouldn't have to make decisions about the weather. That's your job. Move it to Tuesday. <laughs> One of my students yesterday, as it was snowing, you know, we spent the night here, and of course, it's Saturday morning, and the snow was just coming down, and it's the thick, heavy stuff, and the cars, and piling up on the cars, and he said, I remember him saying, you know, I can't believe today, of all days, it would snow. And I, was, I kind of stopped, and I said, you know, I've got to be honest on that one. Was this really the most tragic thing that we need to leave the retreat a little bit early to make sure people get home on time and get home before the snow piles up? It's probably okay. There are worse things in the world that are happening today than, than the snow coming. Yet we're so quick to say, because that was his accusation, right? God, don't you know we're having a great time here and we're having a retreat and now we're kind of going home a little early because of some snow? Do we blame God for even the little things, the things that are our disruptions in our lives? Do we blame God for consequences? Things that like, well, quite honestly, we did it, or somebody else did it, and we blame God. So we blame God when really it's our own fault, or really maybe even somebody else is doing. Sometimes we blame God, and it's just things that happen in the world. Jesus, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The snow falls on Saturdays and Sundays, and sometimes Mondays and Tuesdays. It's just the way it is. Don't let the circumstances of the world or the consequences in our lives, don't let those things become part of our accusation of God because it robs us of the opportunity to trust in God, to obey Him, to follow Him, to walk with Him. It robs our hearts. It creates a sense of bitterness um, of how that's going. I can see my wife's face. She knows that at this little retreat, <clears throat> God allowed me to twist my ankle. I want to blame him for that. I can't blame him for that, right? It's not God's fault. It's my fault. I'm 50 years old. I don't need to play soccer with a bunch of 20-year-olds. I, I, I need to chill out. And I, she, So she's worried about me because she keeps seeing me move around. I can see her face. She's like, oh, he's going to go. He's going to fall over. <laughs> I'm okay so far, honey. Thank you. For your, I see it on her face. We can blame God for all of those little things. The truth of the matter is, <clears throat> I should have tied my shoes tighter. I should have worn some high tops. 
I should have, you know, I should have been better prepared. I should have stretched out before we started playing. There were so many things that are really, it's me at age 50. When if I'm going to play sports, I need to be better prepared. It wasn't the Lord. It wasn't the Lord. Have you found yourself blaming others? Have you found yourself blaming others? Oh, I had a good time. The young lady who, when we were playing soccer, was kind of the reason that I fell over, right? Because I was trying to defend, and, and, the, and I fell over. Oh, I let her know that this, this ankle problem, it was her fault. I wheeled around in the wheelchair, and she was like, oh, no, I'm so sorry. You know, I made her sure, I made sure she felt very bad. Well, while we had a lot of fun, and that's an easy example for us to joke about, we do blame others. We pick someone out. It's their fault. They're the reason there's disharmony in the family. It's that one right there. It's that person that's causing problems in the church. If we could just get them to, well, the Lord would just bless somebody else with their presence, you know, just move them on. We we pick someone and say, that's the reason we're having difficulty. That person is causing the issues. They are the problem. We pick them out. We think that they're the reason for our unhappiness or for our problems at work. You know, uh, it's that new supervisor. New, mm-hmm. Or it's that new colleague or that new employee that's causing me such consternation, that's causing me such frustration. That's ca- oh, and we pick someone to blame. There's a theory in psychology called family systems theory, right? That looks instead of, instead of looking at one individual, it says, well, you need to look at the whole system. You need to look at how people are interacting. We are a family. We are a together. And it's not just one person that is the problem. It's actually the system itself that may be set up that way that causes a lot of grief. Well, I don't know if I always buy into family systems theory in total, but I will say it points out something. This world is a fallen, broken world. Sarah and Abraham were facing a challenge, and it was a challenge that only God could fix, and they were called to trust in God. They were called as a family to work together, but instead they found themselves working against one another. They found themselves working against each other in a way that did not encourage each other's faith. Sarah could have said, you know, Abraham, I know it's been 10 years. I'm really struggling with this. I'm not strong. Help me be strong. Abram could have responded, Sarah, that's a good, I I get where you're coming from. That is not a a culturally non-acceptable suggestion. However, this is why we are not going down that path, because we are trusting the Lord in this situation. We've started to talk about the future of this church and how we are called to be a disciple-making church. One that doesn't say, we're going to fix all the problems by just, I don't know, adding a smoke machine and hiring out an awesome worship band. We're not going to fix all the problems by, by, I don't know, creating a giant hot air balloon outside saying, come here on Sundays and there's free hot air balloon rides. We're not going to, but as a church, we're going to do one thing. We're going to make disciples like Jesus told us to. That means in difficulties where we see, oh, Someone's the problem over here. It's not the person is the problem. The person's the opportunity for us to work together, for them to grow in their walk with Jesus, and for me to grow in my walk with Jesus. The disciple-making church must always do these three things. We must always, in any problem, any difficulty, any challenge that we're trying to overcome, look at ourselves first. Are we part of the problem, or are we helping be part of the solution? Is this a place that God wants to change me? 
Is this a place where God wants to use me to help someone else grow and change and mature? Number two, we have to address those spiritual deficiencies in one another. When we say, well, you know, our pastor's really not so good at this. Okay, he might not be. How do we help him? How do we help him? How do we help him not just, well, I know how we help him. We complain more. No, of course that doesn't help. But how do we help him by coming alongside, providing that support? And I use me as the example, but really it's all of us. It's the worship leaders. How do they help each other? And how do we as a congregation help them? It's our, our, our teachers in our Bible study hour. How do we help them grow as Bible study leaders, maturing in their ability to know and teach God's word? How do we help the finance team become a team that encourages the stewardship in the church? How do we make disciples? And finally, how do we affirm God's goodness in every situation? Affirm God's goodness in every situation. Right now, we don't have enough fill in the blank. Right now, we don't have enough. Right now, these blessings aren't coming. Right now, maybe God is calling us to some patience. Just like Abraham and Sarah saying, no, this is a time to prepare. This is a time when I am working in you. This is a time when I am actually going to gain more glory for myself as you have those children at age 100. And for Sarah, she was 90. The promise would be fulfilled. But they were called to wait. So are you tempted to trade God's promises in for a Hagar? Now here I'm beginning to use her metaphorically, right? Um, what's a Hagar? It's a fine name, but what's a Hagar? Well, it might be an explicit transgression where God has told you not to do something, but you are doing it because you think somehow you deserve it. God didn't fulfill his part. I'm blaming you, Lord. And you know what? Since you haven't come through on your part, I don't have to be obedient in this situation. It's an explicit transgression. I'm going to substitute something for your will that I think I deserve. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. If, if you sow, whoever does, to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. And whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Is there some place in your life where you said, well, I know the Lord has called me to tithe and to give my money, but you know, honestly, God has never really given me the financial blessings I deserve. And... <clears throat> I'm just going to take this as a little bit of his blessing now, and I'm going to invest it my way instead. Have we chosen not to be obedient to the Lord because we feel like God hasn't given us what we think we deserve? It might be an explicit transgression. Number two, a Hagar might be a compromising partnership. Might be a compromising partnership. We might think this is an expedient way to get something done, and so we join in with others that really we shouldn't be joining in with. Um, the scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 6 don't be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what can fellowship, what fellowship can there be with light and darkness? Now, this doesn't mean that we're not connected with unbelievers. We're supposed to be in the world. We're supposed to love others. But what I'm talking about here is where we're having to compromise our values to participate in something that somebody else is doing. Brothers and sisters, this can come a lot in like political realms. 
Sometimes we think it's expedient to go with this party or this party or do this or do this. And, and, and we start thinking, well, 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 we'll compromise. And I'm not telling us who to vote for or, or why we shouldn't participate in politics. I think Christians need to participate in politics. But when we allow the world to define our identity and to say we are locked in to, to something, it's dangerous. We are often finding ourselves yoked together in such a way that it guides us in a path that can be unholy and not good for our witness as believers. We need to be believers. This is where we stand. And if you as the world want to come along with it, that's fine. If we, you, but we are walking with the Lord. We are in partnership with him. There can be business opportunities that seem very lucrative, but maybe that's a wrong partnership. Maybe, maybe there's a place where you're thinking, well, gosh, I can really but it just doesn't work. We need to be holy in our partnerships and our relationships. And finally, there can be these sort of, maybe it's not an explicit transgression, but it's a questionable, it's questionable ethical practice. Questionable. It's like, eh, I don't know. Maybe I can kind of do a little bit of this. I used to drive by pretty much four days a week. I would drive up 95 there, and there would be this nice big sign uh, there every, every day as I drove and would come out of the tunnel. Um, and what would it be? The Mega Million Jackpot. Anybody see this? You drive by it? And I could just watch it. Oh, it's always started at 40 million. Then it would be like 65, 85 million, 200 million. I kept thinking, you know what the Lord could do with that money? A lot. Thank you, Jim. And if he would entrust it to me, I would not, I would not only tithe, I would double tithe. I will, I, you know, I will commit right now to it. You know, if the Lord would, would just, I, boy, I could solve all of our college ministry financial needs. Oh, and I could bless so many churches with that. You know, if the Lord would just, you know, may, may, maybe, I ought to, maybe I ought to just compromise a little bit. And what's it going to cost me, a dollar? Now, is gambling this great evil or whatever? I, I think it can enslave people. And you can make your own choices. I think this is kind of a Romans 14 matter where Paul says, you know, I mean, do it. if it's fun for you, I, I, I'm not saying that, that, that it's some kind of great evil and you shouldn't ever touch it or whatever. But I am saying this. We need to be real careful because I know for me, for my heart, it would be one of those questionable ethical practices. It would be me saying, you know what, I, want, I, I think that will get me what I need rather than the Lord is my inheritance, that I am trusting him every single day, every single week for, for his provision. That, yes, money grows nice and slowly, as the proverb says. If you take and you, you are a good steward of what God ha gives you, I don't need the windfall pie in the sky because I have the Lord of the sky as my inheritance. Why would I trade him for this Hagar? It does that. I don't need your inheritance. My inheritance is the Lord, and he is all things to me. It's those questionable ethical practices. It's those things that I'm like, well, maybe I could do this. Well, maybe I could, but if I've got doubt about it, well, maybe it's not so good, then it's already sin. That's what it says in Romans 14. But whoever has doubt is condemned if they eat. He's talking about eating, uh, whether the, like, meat or other, other types of, of things that were sacrificed to idols. He said, look, you, you're condemned if you eat because their eating is not from faith. And anything that doesn't come from faith is sin. The things that pull me away from the Lord, these things are sin. And when I want to trust in other types of methodologies, other types of... of <clears throat> 
rewards, looking for other things, it can really mess me up. So what's a Hagar for our church? Well, number one, it's, to, it's tolerating the Hagars in our own lives, where we have, traded, we have traded the goodness of God, the truth of God, the promises of God for something that we think will satisfy our lives. As we're going to move forward in a congregation, we're going, people are going to sin. The things that cause men to sin come. But we need to confess our sins because he is faithful and just. And when I say confess, it's not just saying this. It's saying, Lord, I repent. I want this out of my life. Number two, if we're going to use not just, just worldly methodologies, but ungodly methodologies, ones that don't please the Lord, ones that we think, yeah, uh, this has worked for everybody else. This is the way everybody else makes money. This is the way everybody else gets more people involved. This is the way everybody else. We need to use whatever methodologies are godly and good, godly and, and effective. That doesn't mean we don't have advertising. We can have advertising, but we're not going to use ungodly advertising. It's not going to be, hey, come to Valley Baptist Church. We have a who knows? You might win a $50 gift card or something like that. We don't need to bribe people to come to know the Lord. But we do need to let people know that the Lord is moving here. Let the Lord be the attraction. Finally, as a church, we can't justify disobedience to God's direction. If God is calling us to do something as a church, there will be plenty of reasons I will say, oh, we can't do that, or oh, that seems too hard, or that's too risky, or that when God is calling us to move forward, we need to say yes. For those of you that think, oh, he must have a plan, I actually don't. I don't know what that big step of faith is going to be, but the Lord always calls us to one. If we're going to follow him, he always calls us to one. He's always going to call us to something that seems beyond us, to seems to challenge us, to seem maybe it's a commitment of, in your life, maybe it's a step of faith, maybe it's something that's financial, but he always calls us to something that's beyond us. Can we be ready? Can we start saying, yes, Lord? Well, this morning, I want to offer an invitation the first one is to those of you that may be here or maybe worshiping online, that you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never said, Jesus, I want to follow you. You've never asked for his forgiveness. Perhaps that's where we begin today, and you just need to say, yes, Lord. I'm going to be at the front. If you want to, to pray to receive Jesus as your Savior, to accept his forgiveness, I'll be here. For some of us, maybe there's a little repentance that needs to happen, and the altar is open. I will pray with you. You can come and pray by yourself. Maybe there's been a Hagar in your life, that thing that you said, you know, I can do it. I can make it. This, this will satisfy me. I was going to share this earlier, and I forgot. One of the ones that God is convicting me about is if I'll work my It's a belief. It's a Hagar. If I'll work harder. If I'll just try harder, if, I, if, I just, if I'll just do more, somehow God will bring about his reward. When some things are just going to come by his grace. Some things are going to come by his power and not mine. And we need to trust the Lord to, to bring in his harvest and do his powerful work among us.
It's a Hagar for me, right? I want to train. It doesn't mean we don't work hard. It just means that I can't believe that my hard work is going to be the answer for, for what God's going to do in the world. God's convicted me this week about Hagar's. Have you got something in your life that's a Hagar? So today, you respond to the Lord as he's calling you. The music team's going to lead us as we sing. But if God's calling you to make a step, the altar's open. You come. You respond.